Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we're going to blow the barn doors off of this COVID-19 mainstream hysteria, anti-science and fear-inducing messaging. Enough's enough. It's time to bring in the real science, the data, and the real truth to this discussion. It's time to flatten the fear. Yep, and to do so, we have the brilliant Irish engineering mind, Ivor Cummins, on the mics, who will stop you in your tracks with the avalanche of logic, scientific analysis, and damning conclusions from the experts all around the globe. We recorded this just a few days ago on the 29th of May, 2020, because Ivor and I care so much about you as an individual to thrive and to be your best, to not be restricted and paralyzed with all this anti-science. And let's be clear, there is no one better than Ivor Cummins to help stitch together the entire landscape of facts on the coronavirus pandemic. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit mainstream in January, he quickly dropped his diet and heart health advocation to commit all of his engineering and biology brain power to better understand the crisis and how we as a people and governments should be responding. Diving into the data and the science, he's been on a mission to counter the mainstream fear-based hysteria with the more tempered reality. Ivor has quickly become a leading mind globally in best understanding the dynamics of this virus and its health impact across the world. And look, this is not about conspiracies. It's emotional and animated for sure, but only because we deeply care about lifting this deception and letting you live a life that is full and vibrant without unnecessary hysteria. It's 100% about the science, the data and the evidence. If you want to be honestly brought up to speed on the realities of COVID-19 and how you should be thinking and feeling about the risks, this is an absolute must listen. And don't just listen. Share this evidence-based episode to those in your life that you care about. They deserve the truth too. Unless we change the public sentiment, we'll all have our civil liberty suppressed for an awfully long time. As always, you can check out the full show notes of this episode by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find the show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, an online self-improvement program like no other letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, get ready for this highly charged discussion. We have the sharp and insanely smart Ivor Cummins helping to flatten the fear by exposing the COVID-19 real science, real data and real truth. Okay, so I recently formed a kinship with our guest today on the fight against coronavirus, anti-science and hyperbole. He's got a name that makes me smile a little inside and his voice does bring a smile into my face. 
He's got a sharp as a tech Irish engineer in mind. He's been bang on the money about many, many things related to well-being and health for ages and is famous in the low-carb circles for being that force for good CAC and low-carb advocate. He's been fighting a good fight against cardiovascular disease, diabetes and obesity since 2012 and he's added COVID-19 scaremongering to his hit list. He produces and hosts the high-end podcast show Fat Emperor and a popular YouTube channel under his name. He has spoken at health conferences all over the world. He's the co-author of the well-respected nutrition book Eat Rich, Live Long. And if those credentials don't offer enough authority, he has a bachelor's degree in biochemical engineering and has a 30-year career in managing large, complex engineering projects. Lastly, he's a philanthropist acting as the chief program officer for the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity. Yep, we have got the marvellous, caring and super smart Ivor Cummins on the show today. Welcome, Ivor. Hey, thanks, Steve, and for those kind words. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you are you are a legend in my books. Uh, I've been following you for quite a while and I love everything you are producing. Ah, uh, well, thanks. I put a lot of it. I kind of work seven days a week, generally speaking, but it's kind of a labor of love, as as you mentioned there, for the last many years. So it's better than pushing the corporate desk that I did for so many decades. I hear you. I've, uh, I've followed a similar path, man. And look, I know you could cover so much stuff, so I have to be careful as to where we want to take this conversation. But I was thinking, and we did have some back and forth before the call, um, that I'd love to use this episode to synthesize all the latest data and insights that you've gathered and we've gathered generally up until today, which is May 29th, to apply some real science and logic to this COVID-19 pandemic. Because let's face it, that the public sentiment is a product of mainstream media and you know government officials both of which I believe, and I think you do too, are clutching at straws and influencing behavior en masse through fear. So really, I'd like us to move or try to move the conversation from brainwashing and conditioning to education and real science uh, and really try and attempt to get this fear genie back in a bottle. I know there's so much we can cover and I know you are the man who can help make that happen on this show today. Are you up for that, Ivor? Absolutely, Steve. Yeah, I'm sure you've come ready with with the data and the science to hit us over the head hard. So before we get into all of the kind of practical stuff or or the detail and perhaps even pivot towards the back end of this conversation on like, how do we help ourselves, you know, whether it be nutritionally or through lifestyle perspective, maybe to start a little bit lighter, I'd love to know, where did Fat Emperor come from? What's the inspiration behind that name? Because uh, it's not immediately obvious to me. Right. Well, that was many years ago at this stage. Uh, it was kind of a triple layer metaphor. Myself and my wife one evening thought up. And the three layers are, the first one was the obvious one, uh, the Emperor's New Clothes, Hans Christian Andersen. So I had discovered through my research that many researchers realized over I don't know, the past 40 years, that cholesterol was an ambiguous marker and probably wasn't an issue at all. But they said nothing because they could, they'd lose their funding if they went against the cholesterol hypothesis. And the same with fat. Uh, natural fats from healthy foods were maligned. But the researchers who began to realize that knew that their career would be finished if they went against the orthodoxy. So there's the emperor's new clothes side. 
And then the other thing was I realized, although the corporates and the food and pharma industry didn't create all of this cholesterol nonsense, they certainly um, took advantage of it. So they funded studies with a clear expectation of outcomes to support the paradigm because they were making a killing out of it. You know, the Mm. food companies, they were using cheap vegetable oils, factory fats and refined carbohydrates, grains in all their foods because they were kind of told to by the scientists. And those components are dirt cheap. So they loved it. And pharmaceutical, of course, were benefiting enormously from the epidemic of modern chronic disease coming from the bad foods. So there was that kind of corporate emperor, you know, the power behind the throne. And the last one uh, linked to emperor was the, the sad fat emperor, the diabetic obese person through mainly no fault of their own. They became fat and ever increasing hunger Uh, because they were in a toxic environment of refined carbon vegetable oils. So yeah, you got the guys who are greedy and overeat. But in the last 30 years, we didn't suddenly become greedy as a species. Uh, The environment was made toxic. So the poor, sad, fat emperor there, you know, on insulin. So they, they were the three layers. Bit of a long story, but it just seemed to me there's so many layers to the emperor name. Uh, I just said, right, I'm going to use that. I like it. I like it. That makes a lot more sense now. I was thinking more like uh, penguins, but um, that, that, that that's more fitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we kind of get into the, the COVID stuff, um, do you want to just bring the audience up to speed? I've obviously, I've given a high level background, but do you just want to key off on that to just kind of give a bit more of a, your background in a nutshell before we kick this off? Yeah, well, basically I, I did biochemical engineering, came out in 1990 and went straight into my my natural aptitude was technical problems and anything technical. Uh, so my career went ahead really, really well. And I always was focused on resolving complex, multi-factor, ambiguous uh, problems. And I realized I could do that incredibly well compared to other people, even other engineers who are technically the problem-solving profession. So that made me feel good. Uh, but I did go up to very high levels of individual contributor a non-manager. And the last 15 years, I took many management roles uh, in industrial high volume manufacturing and a medical device a few years ago. But the real thing was, even when I was in my manager role with maybe 20 engineering staff as a people manager, whenever a major complex issue arose that threatened the business, I would drop my management role somewhat and I'd directly take over the team if it was serious enough, if there was tens of millions of dollars involved or more. So even when I was a manager for many years, mentoring people in problem solving and people managing them, I regularly had to be drawn back into my direct leadership role. So it's been my life. And that meant that in 2012, when I had poor blood tests and the doctors really couldn't give me clarity on what to do about them or what they meant, I was able to go to the research databases and rapidly uh, root cause it. Uh, And within a few weeks, I went on a low carb diet eliminated all the problem foods. And within eight or nine weeks, I'd lost 15 kilograms, 30 pounds. And all my blood work was uh, incredibly transformed. And my blood pressure collapsed as well within weeks from what was quite honestly kind of high levels. So really, my whole career took a big turn in 2012 when when I got those poor blood tests. And ever since, I've been more focusing on, on health research, metabolic disease, and 
as you say, recently the corona has taken over things so much. I said, okay, let's go root cause that. Yeah, well, I can see you're you're definitely focused on that. I can I can see through Twitter, it's probably consuming lots of your mind, and it, quite frankly, me too. Even though, um, hey, I think it is a bit of a distraction, and I'm quite looking forward to normality. But how, how much of it? How much of your life is focused on understanding? COVID-related data, science, getting into debate, interviewing people. I mean, how much non-COVID stuff are you doing? Let's put it that way at the moment. Yeah, relatively little. And the reason is uh, I saw the math on this from China data and Italy, and I figured, okay, this is a seasonal, severe flu-like illness. Uh, But the reality is it's going to follow a viral curve and come back down again. So back in early March, I was reassuring people not to worry too much. And then the lockdowns happened. And when that happened, basically, I was astonished. But I said, okay, it's fear. And the Italian data drove that fear primarily. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I could understand the uh, the approach. And I, I was okay with it. But after a couple of weeks, it became apparent that the hospital peak had passed. That was the reason for the lockdowns. And no one wanted to let them go. And then I realized there was a massive implication here for our personal freedoms that we had effectively been put under house arrest, which I knew largely for nothing. Uh, But I could understand that they didn't understand that, but that was okay. But when the initial reason passed and the hospitals no longer were under pressure and the problem went into decline in mid-April, I realized they don't want to let these lockdowns go against all logic, mathematics, and science. And even when the deaths came right down and clearly the epidemic had passed like many previous seasons, they still didn't want to let them go. And in Ireland, particularly now, uh, on May the 29th, I still can't travel more than five kilometers to my home. The hospitals are empty. The seasonal flu-like illness has passed, like all before it, and I can't travel. So... This is something of enormous implication that everyone rolls over, gives up their freedoms willingly based on fear and in direct contravention of science, mathematics and logic. Uh, So it's a huge deal. I also realized, though, that back in March when this thing blew up, everyone's only going to be interested in Corona. It's too big to ignore. And people are not going to listen to my metabolic disease and calcium scan message, really. Uh, so I need to focus on this to get a wide listenership and that will extend my reach and it will also allow me to promote our new movie. Because if I promote the new movie on heart disease directly, it's not going to get a lot of traction. But if I give compelling science-based evidential material on Corona, I get a lot of new followers and I'll also get to spread the message on our new movie as kind of an advertisement in my podcasts. And to be honest, that prediction was correct. Um, my followership has gone up three times more than usual per week in the last eight weeks and YouTube views similarly. Um, so I kind of had no choice but to jump into this thing. But I was also very driven for the reasons I said that this is an absolutely outrageous infringement of freedoms. And like the Woods Hole Institute published four year, or four weeks ago or five weeks ago, they did the analysis and the data, got the same result as me and all my professors they said probably a single life may not have been saved related to the lockdowns. Very possibly not a single life. But the implications for depression, suicides, 
you know, incredible unemployment. Cancer victims are, in the UK, there's four times fewer diagnoses of cancer because the hospitals were shut out, even though they weren't full. So all those stage ones, stage twos that would have been caught, they're going to be picked up probably over the next 12 months of stage three, which is around 10 times poorer mortality outcome. So we're talking real massive implications here for health and suffering and probably no gains from the lockdowns. Uh, that's kind of shocking to me. I agree. I agree. And I know we've, uh, as I say, we've formed a bit of a kingship over the last um, few weeks. I, I've been incredibly motivated to, yeah, put out some truth. Um, and I know it's truth that no one wants to hear. It's ugly truth. It's it's inconvenient truth. It goes against really the brainwashing. And, and I know that sounds quite uh, conspiratorial, but the brainwashing over the last 10 weeks has really reformulated people's worldview. Their worldview of risk, their worldview of really just the risk of living. Um, and people have become educated, but I think falsely so. And it's just, it's just scary. You know, I was on a call to uh, one of my child's uh, schools today, and I was speaking, speaking with their headmistress and lovely lady doing the best she can to create a, 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 an appropriate environment for the kids, given the guidelines that have been put in place. And I said to her, like, you know, this is not a scientific issue. And she's like, I, I get it. I know this is a social and political issue. And this is a confidence issue. And I can't go any faster than the confidence of the country allows. So I guess maybe we let's key off on that. You said the, the lockdown, at least from your data and those all around the world looking at this from a mathematical, scientific and epidemiological perspective would say, okay, we've done the lockdown because we were shit scared. We now realize that we need not have this level of re uh, restriction imposed upon our lives but they weren't released. And even the release, the, the kind of easing structure that they're now following is very slow and very cautious. Talk to me why you think we are going so slow. Yeah, well, I guess without getting into conspiracy, as you say, it's still a fear-based approach. And in my mind, an anti-scientific approach. And that sounds quite strong, but I, I very much mean that. It is anti-scientific what they are doing. Because if you look at the history of coronaviruses, which is the common cold virus, though this one is more severe than normal for sure, uh, all coronaviruses in history followed the same kind of curve in late winter and spring. And it relates to immune systems are very suppressed during that season because of UV flux and, and other things. Um, they're ignoring that. Uh, they're ignoring all of the data from multiple professors and the Oxford Center of Evidence-Based Medicine and Carol Hennigan there, professor, uh, Professor Michael Lewis, who's a, or Levitt, who's a Nobel Prize winner, who contacted Ferguson and the Imperial College in March and said, look, I've analyzed the Chinese data. This thing is going through a non-exponential, sharply flattening curve independent of lockdown and you are 10 times out with your prediction of death. And they basically told him to get out of here. And he was correct. So the UK, when this is over, will have around 0.06% mortality rate across the country with the epidemic having passed, um, which is more than 10 times lower than what they predicted. So 
you know, there's many more. The professor Isaac Ben Israel in Israel four or five weeks ago said there's a 70 to 90 day cycle here. It's clear in European countries, they're all the same regardless of lockdown. This is following a classic influenza uh, pattern. And the Woods Hole Institute said the exact same thing in their analysis. And a new German analysis says the exact same thing, that the lockdown added almost nothing, if not nothing. And all of this science and mathematics from real data is being utterly ignored. And the logic is being ignored. So Slovenia in mid-April and Czech Republic dropped a lot of the uh, lockdown measures and their curves kept going down. Israel three weeks ago dropped the measures incredibly. And they said, you have no restrictions, most people back to work and kids can visit their grandmothers again, right in the middle of having loads of infection. And of course, over the three weeks, the curves kept going down. So the virus is following a natural viral cycle, which has been debated for decades, some great papers out there on this, and it almost ignores things like lockdown. You know, we had huge infection rates in March, and they're now talking about antibodies. So people are saying, okay, okay. So we only appear to have 5% or 2% or 3% in these countries. We're nowhere near herd immunity. But what they don't seem to understand, astonishingly, is when a virus rises in season based on seasonal factors, rapidly you have a herd immunity type effect occurring. But a large majority of the people who are de facto or effectively immune are people who blow this away with their innate immune mm -hmm. system, which leaves no antibodies. Another huge number blow this thing away with their T cell and, or immune defense, which leaves no antibodies. And then there's some where it goes to the third level, adaptive immune system, which leaves antibodies. But they're undercounting massively. The reason the curve plateaued and came down is based on the technology of previous influenza epidemics. Uh, and they involve immunity of the population and certain super spreader types becoming non-infective. But the reality is this: the lockdown does very little, if anything. Um, yet they cling to it. I'm not sure. I, I guess the best I can say about them, astonishingly, because they seem to have scientific advisors, is they simply don't understand the science. But, but, but people can't believe that. Surely they have the best advisors. Well, people might be surprised to know that some of the top epidemiologists and virologists in the world in March were saying what I'm saying. And guess what happened to them? YouTube took them down. So if people think, oh, all the experts agree, well, no, all the experts who don't agree have not been covered in the media. And what's more, generally have had their interviews taken off YouTube. So well, I know um, Professor Sakura, right, who's 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 become famous <laughs> over the the last couple of months. I don't know if he had a following prior to this, but he's got two hundred and seventy thousand followers on Twitter. So it's quite incredible. Uh, and then there's a lady um, from Oxford, um, Dr. Sanitra Gupta, um, who's a theoretical epidemiologist. I don't know if you've seen her work, but apparently she was pitted up against. Neil Ferguson with describing a model which basically said, this has come and ripped through our country in January and February. We, we've no business locking down. Have you, have you seen her work? 
I, I have. She did a, a lovely interview with Unheard, but also I, I shared widely the Oxford study that she was involved with that said that, that look, 10 or 20 percent of people or something already could effectively have been exposed and lockdown is kind of pointless. Uh, but no one wanted to hear it. But her mm. recent interview on Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, if you go to that YouTube channel, fantastic interviews with Sakura and Gupta yeah. and many more. And now that they, the data is proving they were correct, they're becoming more forward, which is understandable. But Sikora, he's a professor of oncology, but people should realize the letters after his name. He has a PhD in immunology. He has other masters in similar fields. The guy is an incredible um, <laughs> base of knowledge. And yes, he's realized what's going on. And he recently, just today, I think, released a clip about what I mentioned, the innate immune system, the T-cell mediated immune system, and then there's the adaptive, which produces antibodies. But you've got to add them all together to understand why the cycle goes up and down. But the world is only focusing on the antibodies, which is, I think, it, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, we, we had Dr. Russell Jaffe, who's um, a virologist um, and a functional med uh, medicine expert over in the US. He joined this podcast a couple of months ago and asked about immune health. And he described exactly that, innate and adaptive. And he described all the various responses our body has. And in my further understanding of, of how we respond to, I guess, pathogens and external insults, is kids have, for the most part, pristine um, innate immune systems. They've not had a lifelong uh, chronic abuse of, I guess, lifestyle factors that start to suppress their immune system. And this specific virus is 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 quite benign for, for, for children. You just look at the statistics, it just does not touch them. And if, if you just follow that logic, like kind of just double clicking on what you've said, if you follow the logic of, if this gets blown out by your innate immune system, it doesn't even touch the sides. If this gets blown out by T cells, it doesn't even touch the sides. Only if you're effectively infected and you, I guess, start to see some visible signs of symptoms that perhaps now there is a fight internally that requires the big guns, i.e. the production of antibodies. And only then are you going to then, I guess, test positive for antibodies if the antibody test is effective in the first place. So there's that massive kind of set of activity that could be happening prior to the point in which we create antibodies, which are going to skew the numbers. So when we saw Boris Johnson and his team yesterday saying only 6% of the country, theoretically, have been exposed to this virus, I think that's seriously misled, isn't it? I mean, do you want to say anything else to that? Yeah. Um, what they, what the, their numbers that they showed yesterday? Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially absurd. And it's, I, I just couldn't understand if they have immunologists advising them, how can they not know what we've just said? I mean, I talked the other day to an immunologist in the US in Silicon Valley, kind of a genius type guy. And I said, how can they not be talking? And he said, immunology focuses on the antibodies because that's where the products are on the funding. So he said, to a large extent, they're just not really interested in that. And the innate immune system, they're not interested. So the whole world of immunology has been kind of pickled in looking at the antibody side and the adaptive side where vaccines are. So they've actually ended up being hollowed out. And now there just isn't a focus on innate or T-cell. So again, with the emperor's clothes, I'm sure there's some of them nervously uh, grunting and referring to what we're referring to. But that message is not welcome. 
because it's very clear the message that's desired here. The message that's desired is we don't have herd immunity. Herd immunity is a dirty word. We need to lock down for longer. We need to wait for a vaccine. The message is driving the so-called science. The science is being drowned out. And virologists like, I mean, there's an epidemiologist, Nut Watolsky, I think, Professor Harold Wallach in Germany has written to all of the authorities, beautiful paper uh, explaining all of this. And no one wants this message because I think, to be honest, Steve, if this message of scientific fact gets out, people will have to face that the lockdown caused all the suffering and Mm -hmm. waste for nothing. And that's politically impossible to face now. So I think you'll find that every shred of so-called science that can support the lockdown will be dragged out. You know, they'll put lipstick on every pig and it'll be presented to us in the mass media. And the real science in the meantime will scream in agony, you know, at, at, at being denied. And uh, I find this most offensive because ever since my first job when I was in my 20s, I always hated one thing more than anything else. And that's when the technical truth was twisted for a political end. And it used to happen. So if there's a big issue where a manager was culpable because the wrong materials were used, I would come across scenarios where the manager would start blaming the operators that they weren't doing the correct procedures. And I understood why they did it. Obviously, it was political. But it offended me because the truth should be known about technical matters. Otherwise, we never move forward. And this one is a once in a lifetime for me, where the technical truth is being so massacred, right? It's just, it's astonishing, you know? It's, it's almost it's depressing. Ass, it's arse covering. It's absolutely yeah. arse covering. And I mean, I can see it. Like you look at the briefings and you could see the scripted part is like at best okay. And then as soon as we start ad-libbing, you know, they're stuttering, they're stammering. The, the, the logic they provide just feels very weak. Um, there keeps there, There's so many claims of the scientific advice, but I've yet to see any <laughs> materialise in any of these briefings or documents. Um, and we saw that yesterday as well. Um, but I guess that the, the public sentiment or the, the public opinion will be, Steve, like you're just getting a bit too hyped up on conspiracy because, you know, they've got SAGE, they've got all these scientific advisors, they, they must have the world's best and their dog supporting this. Uh, you must be wrong. The focus on R is absolutely the right thing. We can manage it. And like everyone's an expert on <laughs> R0 when no one really understands what it is. Um, I just think it's a, it's a complete farce. And I just find it disgra- disgraceful that I'm guessing smart people that know better are choosing to give us information that is, I don't think, deceitful just not it's just not helpful it's telling the narrative they want to tell versus i think the more optimistic narrative which is this is not actually such a bad deal for us and we can handle this um talk to me a little bit about that in particular so the question i want to ask is are we dropping like flies so there is a sense that we're dropping like flies and there's you know so many deaths every single day uh deaths above and beyond what we'd otherwise see in a country and um it, it is right for us to continue to be in panic stations. Can you put our performance from a fatality perspective in context to, you know, averages or throughout Europe or however you want to kind of slice and dice it? 
Yeah, well, I guess, are we dropping like flies? No, we're dropping like humans always dropped, older and sicker, in previous influenza seasons for all of history. Uh, not much different. So basically, to give numbers, uh, there were 140,000 excess deaths in the 2018 respiratory season. And right now, there's 160,000 in this season. So it's a little higher. It's lower than the year 2000, though, right, for comparison. So basically, that's it. And you could say that, and people are saying that, oh, but we did lockdowns. It would be much worse. And we know from the mathematics that's not true. And we know that all of the grocery workers, millions of them around the world, we have the data, they actually have no excess infection or death rate than the people who are locked in their houses, right? And they're facing people eight, 10 hours a day. We know the essential workers even had their kids allowed to go to schools, right? They experience no extra impact over the people who are locked down. So we just know from that those and many other points of logic we also know that all of the studies that were done looking at the R number, the so-called R number, they bear no relation to the lockdown point. So the Koch Institute in Germany saw that the R number had fallen naturally as per viral cycle down towards one before the lockdown kicked in. Professor Hennigan in Oxford published this in uh, late April, that the UK had hit the peak and were falling before the lockdown kicked in. And when the lockdown kicked in, it didn't change the curve one iota as it rolled downwards. So we know from the mathematics without any question, no modeling, we know the lockdown did effectively nothing. Therefore, we can compare years as normal. And we see that so far this year, Corona has not been much different than 2018. Now, people will then say, well, okay, hold on a minute. How can Corona not be different than before? Because we saw the Italian stuff. We saw the hospitals get hit. And the reason is actually surprisingly simple. So in 2019 season, it was very soft. There were almost no excess deaths from influenzas, et cetera, in the winter season. So Across a lot Europe, of people who are older and sicker didn't actually pass away when usually they would, like in 18. So we've got this huge cohort built up who are surviving, which is great, uh, but they normally would have succumbed. Then in the early 2018 season, up until March, from November 19 to March uh, 20, again, there was no excess death seen, which is very unusual. So a very soft flu season. So now we've got another large cohort of old people and susceptible people for various reasons who have not been um, you know, have not been caused to, to die from, from these kinds of things. So what happened is when Corona came, it was almost like the virus whose train was late, was one phrase. It came in in March seasonally, the triggers happened and it shot up. And it had a huge cohort across Europe of people who'd been spared for nearly two years. And therefore there was a mega spike. So if people want to visualize it, it looks like with Europe death rate falling down really low and ending for the, for the season, it looks like we'll have similar numbers dying to 2018, but the big difference is they died within four or five weeks, not four months. If they had a died across four months, like a normal season, you wouldn't see any packed hospitals at all. 
You know, no one even knew in 2018 that it was as bad as this year overall. I agree. Right? Corona was compressed for technical reasons. Therefore, it appears much worse. But the actual mathematics says we're going to be similar to 18 and less bad than 2000. That's just a mathematical kind of fact. And when you compare um, England and Wales ONS data from 2017-2018 to this year, year to date, it's trending. It's tr- it's actually slightly below. Yeah. Um, and I, I think people are just not hearing that. They don't. They, they can't fathom that that could even be plausible, given as you say the the spike and compression and uh, the very clear, obvious nature of people dying right now. Um, but the data doesn't lie. So how, I guess here's another question. You said that categorically the lockdown hasn't, has, it, it hasn't affected, it didn't affect, um, I guess, death rates. They were anticipated given the level of infection we could see. However, I guess the, the layman will look at the graphs and say we locked down kind of mid-March, towards the back end of March. We peaked on April 2nd or so. It's roughly two weeks between those two dates. We've been told you can be asymptomatic for two weeks. And then as as the peak then starts to drift downwards very rapidly, that looks like the lockdown is doing a beautiful job. So it's either very coincidental that those timelines match perfectly or there's something else to explain that. Can you just give a little bit more context? Because the layman will not necessarily understand how these graphs demonstrate the lockdown was ineffective. Yeah, it's it's a it's a classical illusion of correlation, not causation. So the good thing is, as I mentioned, four full professors now have done the analysis and verified it's as I say. So that's not to appeal to authority, but the work's been done and the Woods Hole Institute and the Koch Institute in Germany. Um, So the work's been done. People can be assured of that. But I'll just describe it in layperson's terms. So in the late March, uh, UK lockdown, but there's a lag time. So basically, US data shows the first cases that they track back to, I think, late January. And they were elderly people. So they're going to succumb pretty quick. But there was four weeks to death. So the death peak in England was the 8th of April. So you got to go back four weeks, right, mm-hmm. to when a lockdown could have started affecting the curve. And that's going to bring you two weeks before the lockdown. So in every country, you're seeing the R number and the death peak out by a couple of weeks, give or take. And because there's so many countries now, the data is there for, you know, it's not like, oh, it's two weeks or it's a week and a half or maybe the lockdown did something. No, there's lots of countries. They're all the same. So the lockdown came a week too late before it could affect the curve. And the reality is when the lockdown came in, the shape of the curve that was already coming down did not shift in the slightest. So that's another thing for people to understand. Let's say the lockdown didn't change the peak, but it helped the curve come down. You could argue that. Not true. Because when the lockdown came in, you can see that the curve that's falling didn't shift its shape. It kept following. It ignored the lockdown. So on two fronts and from all the math, the shape of the curves, the peaks, and the whole behavior of the virus, de facto ignored the lockdowns. 
And the other way to look at it is, if you believe, God bless you, that the lockdowns changed anything, well, then the lockdowns, you would say, were effective. Okay, I'll test your hypothesis right now. So if the lockdowns were effective when there's virus in your population and they improved things and brought down the curve faster, without question, that means when you stop the lockdowns, the curve should go back up again or change upwards, right? Is that fair, Steve? Oh, absolutely. You'd, absolutely. You'd, you'd say if we're, if we're withholding infection via lockdown, as soon as we start releasing lockdown, infection will continue to spread and, and we should see a rising of the numbers. Exactly. And if you dump most aspects of lockdown, like Slovenia, Czech Republic, Israel, and I could go on all day, you should see a big rise, not just a small one. You should see a big mother. We saw nothing. Nothing. The curve I, I could continued. Count, I could counter to that. I could counter and say those two countries, um, relatively small, different type of demographic in terms of, I guess, density, and uh, their numbers were very low, generally speaking. Um, would you say that's appropriate? Would you say because they're much smaller in their incidence and the, 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 it just looked like Israel didn't have a problem ever. Like it didn't look mm -hmm. like as if it ever become a big issue for them. Uh, whereas of course we are seeing a big issue here in the UK. Yeah, you could say that. And it's great you bring it up because I get to address it. So I'll take Sweden with no lockdown and people are trying to say, oh yeah, but they're doing loads of distancing. CNN went into Sweden a week ago, right? People are shopping in Stockholm, where 55% of the deaths came from, not even they're not even respecting one meter. The streets are full. People can go to their hairdressers. There's people in bars. Come on. So they did no lockdown worth the toss. Sure, people work from home, but like in Stockholm in the center, it's buzzing. Right. Sweden's R-curve started falling rapidly in March. And if you put Sweden's R-curve against the UK's, you can't tell which is which. A friend of mine put the two curves together, one in red and blue, and says, tell me which is the UK and tell me which is Sweden, right? Their R-curve collapse is the exact same. One had lockdown, now releasing it, one didn't. Exact same curve, no difference. Sweden has three times less death than one of the most locked down states in the US. But the curve is exactly the same shape. Exactly the same shape. And we're just seeing it in all countries. You know, London, which was dramatically hit, obviously, tragically, you know, density does have a place to play. They let people go back to work a couple of weeks ago. Nothing really happened. They're in the, the tubes. Nothing happened. People are going to have to face up to the fact when you take away lockdown, nothing changes. And I mean, this is so obvious in the data. I'll give you another example. Right. Examples are good for people, I think. So Seattle has been lauded in the American press, in the New Yorker, as being the most incredibly on the ball for locking down starting late February. Right. They're getting huge plaudits. Amazing guys. Right. Their population death rate is 0.07%. OK, then. New York, which is the worst in America and absolutely, you know, hammered for having done nothing, has a death rate of 0.16. So the worst non-lockdown place in the US 
is around double the best possible lockdown. And that can easily be explained, that difference, by density, north latitude, city, uh, black population and ethnic population. You can explain a double without even trying, right? But you have there amazing lockdown versus catastrophic lack of lockdown. And there is no difference because you can easily explain it with the BAME population. And then just to give another example, you can take Illinois has four times the death rate of Florida. Illinois did one of the most severe lockdowns in mid-March with stay-at-home orders. Florida did almost nothing and reluctantly in April under political pressure began to lock down a bit but they have four times less death rate than Illinois. And I could go on all day. The lockdown doesn't change the curves. Sorry, I know you want to believe it does. All the people want to believe it. All the media are saying it. But mathematically, it doesn't. And the reasons are too complex to get into here, Steve, but there's a paper you might link, uh, a fantastic paper, 15 years old, on how influenza spread. And it notes that even before air travel, way, way back, even in ancient history, epidemics popped up at the same latitudes all over the world within two days of each other. One study looked at 25 different flu epidemics. In every one of them, from Lisbon to Vladivostok or whatever, through to Denver, Ohio, within two to three days, the curve shot up, right, Mm. with no travel. So yes, in the year behind an epidemic, things are spreading. And there's certain people in the population that are kind of super spreaders or almost like hosts. And when the seasonal trigger happens, the virus blows up. And uh, people can read the paper, by the way. I'm not, I'm not de- deciding this. There, there's, there's research on this, but no one's talking about it. Um, with seasonal triggers, it rises and it follows a, an almost predetermined course. Spreading at that stage is not so important anymore. It's baked in. And the fall of the curve is baked in in our immune system response across the population. So it's not as simple as the idea that you sneeze and someone gets it. I mean, these guys, <laughs> there's a guy, I can send you a link to a PDF of a book about influenzas the guy who did the most research ever on the spreading and when the epidemics popped up. And in the Spanish flu, they took people who were sick with fever of Spanish flu, brought in Navy volunteers in their 20s, and that flu did kill people in their 20s. And these brave guys came in and they subjected themselves to having sputum and nose clearings from the actively sick people put into their own noses. And they couldn't make them sick. And they then tried to get the victims who were very ill to sneeze in their faces. I know this sounds gross. And they (laughs) could not make them sick. So yes, viruses do spread. But once it's endemic in the population, it's baked in. The spreading then becomes a really much lesser thing. It's going to follow its course, seasonally triggered. And they still don't fully understand why. Uh, Let's 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 key off that for a second. Um, so I've, I've, um, my understanding, maybe please correct me if you feel I've got a rudimentary view on this. My understanding is really what we're seeing is um, a thinning of the vulnerable, a thinning of the susceptible. 
so whether you want to use, you know, like herd on a savannah or some other kind of analogy, but really it's, uh, it's the weakest of the population are getting caught out. And people's susceptibility to all-cause mortality, generally speaking, ebbs and flows with both their lifestyle and environmental factors, such as, you know, sun and UV. So it would stand to reason that countries that are either the most sick or countries that um, have, uh, they're in a, in a lower season, i.e. Suppressed, uh, a suppressed immune uh, health season, that their susceptibility would be higher and their um, response to this in terms of uh, serious cases and deaths would be higher. And the reason I mention this is that there's, there's so much um, so much infighting at the moment on this idea of Sweden versus the UK. And uh, I think it was um, BBC and others jumped at the chance a couple of days ago to position that uh, Sweden are overtaken or just about sitting behind the UK in number of uh, deaths per million um, over the last seven days only and really just saying okay look clearly their 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 approach is ineffective and I'm trying to have the discussion online which is to say I don't think we're talking about operational failing here our ability to manage control obliterate the virus I think what we're really talking about is uh, a failing of our people from a health perspective and increasing their susceptibility whether it be purely through seasonality which part explains it but more importantly our health of our people what they've what they're fed what they're told to eat how their kind of lifestyles play out because if you look at the UK we're one of the sickest populations in the world and when you then marry that to how many deaths we've seen it's not too surprising but I think people are really struggling with this because they're looking at us at being one of the top leaders of deaths per population and saying we clearly have done it wrong and therefore, we must continue to lock down to save us. I mean, what do you say to all of this kind of narrative kicking off at the moment? Because, yeah, UK are pretty high. Sweden are pretty high from a deaths per million perspective. What do you say about all of that? Yeah, well, this again brings us straight into the realm of anti-science. So if you were to pick the big factors that would decide your peak, uh, probably seven or eight of them, if you put them together, you get a perfect prediction of how many people would die per million. And the degree of insulin resistance to the population or leptin resistance would be a big factor. The vitamin D status, which is also a marker for inflammatory challenges, obesity and insulin resistance, um, magnesium sufficiency and selenium. So you could get probably five, six, seven factors and put them in an equation and you could predict with very good accuracy what's going to happen in the country. And yet again, it will be independent of lockdown. Of course, it will just be baked in. So Sweden at the moment is a good bit less than England in deaths per million. And what they did quite cleverly and deceitfully in the press was they waited for a single day or two. Mm -hmm. And for that day or two, they were slightly above the UK. A day or two later, they went back down under. But the overall area under the curve for Sweden is a lot better than England. And you'll see that in the league tables for deaths per million. So that's just gutter journalism, basically, uh, and deceit. Uh, Sweden, I expected back in March that they might hit 0.06% fatality by the time the epidemic or pandemic ended. And they're at 0.04. And yes, they are heading max to 0.06. 
So predicted that in March because you, you know where the curve is going. And England will England will be worse than that. They might be 0 0.08. So it, it the countries that are healthier then, like if you take Northern Italy and they were hit hard, they regularly in the past have had terrible flu seasons with hospitals overloaded. And what people don't realize is Northern Italy has the most profound vitamin D deficiency in all of Europe. So like 85% of their elderly people or people in an institutional type setting are profoundly vitamin D deficient. Over 30% of their postmenopausal women are vitamin D deficient. So if you look at Japan then, it's a similar latitude, similar sun, but they're different because they eat healthy, they eat fish and they're much healthier. Uh, one study showed that 95% of their active elderly were fully vitamin D sufficient. And that's versus against 86% deficient in Italy North. So again, D is only one factor. It's both a problem in the immune system when it's low, and it's also a marker for the problems you referred to, unhealthiness. England is horrific. I mean, England is in the obesity league tables, like Ireland, is, is vying with America over the in the next 10 years. So we can tell ourselves we're healthy, we're modern, we're destroyed. I mean, England, over 50% of calories in an Oxford study two years ago are coming from ultra-processed foods, which is what causes the diabetes and the obesity. So anyone who thinks England is modernized and healthy is just fooling themselves. England is riddled with diabetes. I don't even think that's necessarily the argument pro-lockdowners are making right now. I think the argument is is less about, that's irrelevant. The relevance is, I blame the government. Like So you, you see you see left and right fighting right now. You see pro-lockdowners and COVID <laughs> deniers fighting. Everyone's fighting. There's a lot of tribalism right now. There's a lot of, you know, people are struggling because their belief systems are getting shattered and re, you know, rebuilt and they're trying to work out what's what. Um, but I'm seeing, you know, there, there is a clearly a very, very strong sentiment in this country supporting everything that the government have done. Now, they'll throw them under the bus, uh, you know, as soon as they do something wrong, um, such as your namesake, or almost, uh, Dominic <laughs> Cummings. <laughs> yes. um, but we're clearly very angry as a population. Like, you know, we, we're, we're frustrated by our liberties being taken, but we quite like it. We quite like the fact mm. that we've had a holiday over the last 10 weeks. Yeah, um, crazy. There's, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of misplaced risk assessment. Um, and risk is now just starting to become aware, do oh, you know what, there's risk in life. Uh, and there's this sense that we can manage out risk. And it, it's just all a little bit bizarre. But you'll find that pro-lockdowners will either say, we've got a high number because we locked down too late. Well, no, I think that is the message. We're, we're doing the right thing by locking down. The reason we've got high numbers is because we locked down too late. So let's carry on locking down. That really is all I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's anti-scientific and, and outright false. But remember, I used to say about engineers, and this is going to sound patronizing now and arrogant, but I'm going to say it because it's true. So I used to say about engineers after being 30 years in the field, the engineers are the problem-solving profession. So they're going to be technically more adept than the average person in general. But that said, if I have a complex issue and this is certainly a complex issue with lag times, you know, transfer rates, um, 
You've got the fact that you've got seasonality and it's not even fully understood after 100 years of research. So it's highly complex. So I used to say engineers, around 70% of them I wouldn't have in an important role on a complex uh, technical issue because they're not really that technical. Around 20% are very technical and intuitive and they'd be, they'd be very good. But only 10% of engineers are truly born for complex issue resolution. You know, and if you have a really big one, you need the top 1% of engineers, which is probably the top one in a thousand of average people. And that's just the way it is. So what we have now is an issue where people's common sense and logic cannot handle because humans have an inbuilt fear of contagion. It's evolutionary developed like the spiders and the snakes. Why are we scared of spiders and snakes? Bill, because they're poisonous and we have an instinct. Humans have an instinct of contagion. When a genuine issue comes along, they will run from the tribe. They will run and hide, and rightly so. So what the press and, and this the polit politicals have done is they've harnessed and taken a huge, powerful force. Humans' fear of contagion and absolute inability to understand it. Mm. And, and that's basically what's driving this whole thing. It is kind of a mass psychosis. I know that sounds harsh, but it's a mass psychosis. And I'm watching this with horror since March, just thinking, wow, right? So I don't blame the people for having the opinions that you've just said, Steve. It's actually not really their fault. Um, there's no way the vast majority of people would be able to internalize and process uh, the actual science behind what we're talking about today. They just can't. Uh, I'll give you two little examples back to the layperson. So I have one friend who's a good technical guy, but he's a builder. And usually when the political class and the media are talking crap and sensationalizing something, he'll figure out, nah, that's wrong. They're exaggerating. And I was stunned a month ago when he had fully fallen for this one hook, line and sinker. And it took me around 20 minutes to explain to him the logic. And then he realized, wow, you're right. In contrast, someone quite close to me who's non-technical, who's basically a paper pusher, that person worked it out and told me. And I said, how did you work that out? Have you seen my material? No. How did you work it out? And he says, well, I just realized over a few days, this is a pandemic, but I don't know anyone who knows anyone who even knows anyone who's been affected. So I said, it can't be a pandemic. And I said, was that it? And he said, no, there's one more thing. And I said, what? And he said, well, I like shopping and a lot of stores are closed, but I like shopping. So, and I know this, this guy does. So he keeps going to all different stores and just buying food and stuff, the stores that are open. And he noticed that all ages, all the people in all the stores, everywhere he went, none of them got it. Certainly none of them died. And he said, those guys are the opposite of lockdown and nothing's happened. He said, it can't be true. And I said, well, congratulations, because you've just used logic alone to perfectly solve a complex issue without having any technical experience. Um, and some people are doing that increasingly, but most people, they'll never think of that logic because they just, they'll just think the experts and, and everyone can't be wrong. But look at that guy I just mentioned. He worked it all out from first principles, just from logic. Didn't even need immunology, epidemiology, none of that stuff. Just logic. And he was correct. Yeah.
I, I'm, I'm seeing that increasingly from the people I'm speaking to as well. There is a, um, I guess, a level of cynicism that's starting to feature just because uh, things that made sense in mid-March and early April, now that we're going against them, as you say, as now we're starting to ease out uh, and the easing out uh, guidelines, they, they make no sense. One, they're completely arbitrary, right? Completely arbitrary. Everyone's taking a piss out of them and doing memes online and going, what, what, what? what? You, can't, <laughs> you can go into someone's house and use a toilet, but you can't do this. And it's just, it sounds ridiculous. It is absurd, the rules that we have in place. Like, why are those numbers? Why only six people? Why only outside? What's the distance? There's no, there's no logic. And, and really, we're not being told how they've arrived at these numbers. Other than the fact, you know, from my perspective, I know they're taking one step down the run at a time because we have to try and exit our, our population out of this fear cycle we've put them in. And the only way to do that is to very slowly and easily, like kind of, it's like boiling the frog. It's like going in reverse though. We have to slowly <laughs> taper this down because people people are, are going to just say bullshit otherwise if we just stop it tomorrow and, and, and the world doesn't end. And I think you're right that the logic doesn't exist because okay, I may be speaking out of turn. We've been uh, about 17 days from the first kind of lockdown uh, easing. And we've really, we've seen nothing. The data is not pointing upwards at all. It continues to decline. Um, and I remember when they done that, you know, when um, uh, Boris said his piece and his, everyone's taking a piss at the fact that none of it made sense. He was saying, go out, but stay home and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been following the data. It has been trending down from then. But I saw people online that day and subsequent days going, taking pictures of some some of the beaches in and around the UK that people have like basically gone on gone to the beaches and it looks like they're social distancing but they're there and they've got mean memes going I see dead people watch what happens in two weeks or were you seeing pictures of people kind of bus hustling in the in the underground and in the tubes and going right just watch what happens in two weeks there was a certainty perpetuating through social media that we are going to just be back to square one within two weeks. Where are those people? What are they saying now? Because at the moment, that's not happened. Now, I could be eating, I may have to eat my hat, you know, and maybe there is a massive spike that happens in the next week or so, but I really can't see that happening. Well, yeah, I mean, all of the science, mathematics and existing data says that will not happen. Um, but you can never say never. So I know I've been very strong out there based on the science and evidence. But equally, in the back of my mind, if something bizarre happens and a strain mutates or something, you could see a spike. But that doesn't make any sense. But it, not, you can never say never. So all those people are saying that, and I'm arguing with them all the time, and they have no data. So they are all basically either twisting data or just listening to the media. And you're absolutely right. The UK government in March and the SAGE documents, I think they were leaked but they had laid out in engineering style the plan to leverage the media to get the people scared and to get the people to fear the threat. Yeah, and I they shared put, that. You which? Yeah, I, I shared that. They are they're available publicly. Uh, oh right, you know yeah. URL. Yeah. And and the downside was that people could get divisive, you know, because they'd been manipulated, and you could get people turning on people some who were brainwashed, some who were not, and it could cause a bit of civil disruption. So they knew what they were doing. And I agree with you totally. They're now trying to bring it back down. So they fooled everyone. And then they, they need to bring them back out of it without making people feel like fools and getting angry. And that's what they're doing. Uh, but London, as you say, 
two and a half weeks ago. I thank God I said they are they are dropping this nonsense. And of course, London kept falling like a stone, and it's down to nearly nothing now. And the tubes have been full. What are those people going to say? They're they're going to make up new stuff to keep their cognitive bias to protect their uh, just to protect their psychological health. They're going to find some new fantastical ways had they weren't complete idiots. And I'm not sure what those those arguments will be yet, but I'm looking forward to see them. Or they'll slink away and just say nothing and feel foolish. I mean, that's the best thing that can happen. Uh, but again, I don't blame them. I'm speaking harshly about them because they're supporting the suspension of civil liberties, which was an absolute disgrace for basically a flu-like illness, which is pretty similar to 18 and, and less bad than 2000, except it came in a spike for the reasons I described. And the suspension of civil liberties for that is a very, very frightening thing. I don't know if you saw Lord Sumption, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the UK, late March, an interview? Uh, I heard a, a brief interview. I don't know if it's the same one you're referring to. Yeah, it's six minutes, but it is yeah. well worth a listen. And that was in end March. He said people literally have pretty much lost the plot. And he said they've forgotten the lessons of the past. You know, I think he referred to World War II. I'm a massive World War II buff. And that's one of the reasons this is so frightening to me. I mean, there's talk. Look, I don't want to mention the word vaccine, but a few days ago, there was a certain well-known individual who promotes vaccines who spent billions of dollars funding the WHO and funding Imperial College, I think $70 million, just coincidentally having funded for a decade the biggest fear mongers on the planet, which had a part in blowing this thing up. Uh, basically, there was a statement that 7 billion people will need a coronavirus vaccination as soon as it's available. And there's a full expectation it'll go in the infant uh, immunization protocol as a default. And I'm just thinking, am I reading what I'm reading? I mean, you've got something of a similar level of impact as previous season's influenzas, and you're talking about 7 billion people. And did anyone do the number needed to treat? So the number needed to treat for a drug is the number you need to treat for, say, five or 10 years to save one person or, or to uh, extend their life or whatever. And for statins, it's around 70 or 80. And there's a huge debate whether 70 or 80 is too high a number needed to treat to get one person to avoid a heart attack or maybe extend their life a bit. So 70 or 80 is debated. I did a rough calculation for coronavirus based on the data. And the number needed to treat, if you're going to vaccinate everyone, is somewhere in the order of 10,000 to 20,000. And um, I mean, I got all the vaccines, you know, the family got all the vaccines, the measles, all that stuff. That all made sense. But talking about a coronavirus vaccine for this thing, uh, it just makes no sense. It, it, it just makes no sense. Nothing about I mean, harms. It, 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 it makes... It makes a lot of sense, uh, in in as much and and it sounds it sounds uh, callous and it sounds uh, misplaced and conspiratorial, but it makes sense from uh, from a from a money making perspective, from a profit perspective, from an industry perspective, um, and let's face it, there's minimal liability incurred, and there's minimal safety testing required, like the through through the legislation dropped in 1986. Like I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just know, you know, right here, right now, 
its heyday for people that can create something that is considered efficacious enough to get deployed at mass. Just think of how much money is going to be made. And the question is, do you need it? And how effective will it be? And do you trust something that's going to be rushed to market without any testing? For me, I'd rather take my chances because I don't take any meds unless I absolutely must. I don't think I absolutely must do this. But I think the sentiment right now is we all need the vaccine. Yeah, it's an extraordinary sentiment because it makes no scientific sense whatsoever. So you've always got to prick up your ears, not when there's a conspiracy, because I always say to people, the conspiracy that the CIA blew up the towers is obviously absurd. Because have you ever watched a documentary where they blow up buildings? You know, you need to spend a month or two wiring them, drilling them, and they need to be completely empty with swarms of workers all over them. So you can immediately say that's a conspiracy theory. It's absurd. However, with this one, it's not a conspiracy theory because the data and the science says the exact opposite, like, like I described. So, of course, measles and, uh, and, and some of the big diseases that became endemic, you know, the vaccine's great. But you start using them for a coronavirus, like the common cold virus, and, and, and the rhetoric that we've heard, it just makes no scientific sense. Just like I described, the number needed to treat would be 10 or 20,000. The impact, we also know published papers, and this is published peer-reviewed science, flu and influenza vaccines in general are just very ineffective. I mean, we know this, it's published. It's nothing like measles. So they did a study over 25 years of influenza to look for the impact when they'd gone from no vaccination for influenza up to 60% in some areas. And they found no statistical significant improvement in flu mortality over the 25-year period. There was no correlation. And now the flu vaccine is helping some people somewhere. But it's interesting when you take a bird's eye view and look at all the data, it doesn't even show up. And, you know, we know in previous years where, where there were influenza outbreaks and they said, oh, well, it was a different strain this year. And all there's always an excuse. But let's be honest, it's not anti-vax. Influenza vaccines are very weak interventions. And coronavirus, they spent 30 years and they never even were able to develop one because we have the studies on the monkeys where they gave a, a vaccine. And when they exposed the monkeys to coronavirus, they were vastly worse off because they got a cytokine storm. They overreacted. So it's one of the most risky and dodgy vaccines you could think of. The number needed to treat is absurdly high because we know from the data now the impact of corona, and it's not that big, even though there's tragedies. Um, so it makes no scientific sense. And I, I'm searching myself and I'm thinking, maybe I'm missing something here. And I, the engineering method is always to test your own hypothesis and to say to yourself, I'm wrong, I'm missing something. That's the only way you get rapid resolution. And I'm thinking here, what am I missing? Because I know all the data. I have all the data. I'm seven or eight weeks on this. How can anyone say what was said in that article? This concept that you would actually try and vaccinate everyone for this year's coronavirus. It makes no scientific sense whatsoever or mathematical. Do you know, do you know what I mean, Steve? I mean, it's just, it's I, actually, I agree. it's absurd. I, I agree. I, I guess I guess we're 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 having a conversation where there's two people sitting on the same side of the table, um, very very strongly and passionately uh, frustrated with what we're seeing. So I, I know there's bias, uh, and I know we're kind of mm. you know kind of geeing each other up, and uh, you know I do I do wish to try and be um, uh, challenging you for the benefit of Joe Public because I don't think many people have our 
our, our kind of um, worldview at the moment. So let me continue to push a little further just to make sure we are covering our bases. So would you would you say that the UK, well, no, what would you say the government have done right? Um, what, or, or put yourself in, in their position. Would you have done the same thing, right? You're, 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 you're screwed whatever you do. Um, you've got deaths raging across the world. Our numbers are starting to increase. People are panicking. We've seen data from a few places that look quite scary. We're getting uh, worst-case scenarios from, like, Neil Ferguson, which suggests, like, you know, a lot of people are going to die. And there's going to be blood on your hands. I, I can't imagine, as much as I would like to have the kahunas to say, trust me, guys, we're going to be fine. I can't imagine me doing that. So when you look at this retrospectively, and honestly, if you was in that position, if you was Boris Johnson, if you had that job and you had advisors around you, what would you have done? Yeah, it's a fair question. I have thought about this. So it's a hard compare because I am who I am and I would have, my like my whole career, gone and found the data. And it would be easily findable because the Swedish experts had it and the UK were talking to Sweden. So even if I didn't find Professor Levitt from Stanford, even though in fairness, he communicated with Ferguson back in March. So I'd say as Boris, I would have been able to find someone like him, but I certainly would have found the Swedish experts and, and grilled them. Why are you considering just a bit of distancing and not lockdown? And to be honest, I would have known from talking to them, I would say arrogantly that they're right, but then I might have to make a political decision that I couldn't take the risk anyway. And that's kind of maybe what you're speaking to as well. So I might consider politically to follow the world and do a bit of a lockdown, even if I didn't believe in it, to cover my ass. And that's essentially a lot of ass covering was being done. But I would have been watching like a hawk for the turn of that curve. And when the curve turned and the hospitals became non-overloaded and were on the downswing, I would then rapidly move to be the first nation to start backing off on lockdown and watching the curve like a hawk. That's the bit they missed, inexplicably. When the curve turned and Professor Hennigan from Oxford was publishing, he was in the Telegraph, why didn't they say, right, we're British, we fought the war, we won the war. This is only a 0 .0 something percent death rate, mostly in aged and infirm. Now we can be leaders and begin to bring back the lockdown ahead of the pack based on data. And if something begins to go wrong, we can always put it back on again because the people are scared shitless now. So if we tell them, oh, we got to put it back on again, they're going to do it. So we got all, we, we, we have every power at our disposal to do the right thing, but they chose not to. Now that's the bit I can't fully work out. You know, why did they choose to hold the lockdown when they'd reached their objective and they were on the downslope, clearly, why hold the lockdown? That's I, the I personally, I personally think it's. Um, I think they create a rod for their own back, in as much that with twenty four seven hitting over the head through mainstream media and messaging on a constant basis, people's worldview fundamentally changed over a period of four to five weeks. People that you know. And I keep saying this to my friends and family. In December, was you walking around thinking about the risk of catching something from me or others that you go visit from you know place to place? No one was thinking about this. 
everyone, you know, maybe some people more yeah, cleaner than others have better hygiene practices, they're a little bit more aware of susceptibility. But for the most part, this didn't even feature, this was not part of people's worldview. Within five weeks, everyone's worldview has changed. And now the, the it's a scary world out there. And I think, honestly, the you know this fear genie has as you know exited the bottle. You can't get it back in, and mm. I, I think it's because of that. Because the if you really if you if you poll the the public right now, everyone I, I'd say by and large, as a majority, are in support of continued restrictions because they believe that be the right thing to do, yeah. and um and I struggle with that because come on people just wake up please because if if the public sentiment changes we allow our government to exit more smoothly as opposed to appeasing and bending to the most fearful because that's basically what's happening i'm speaking to friends and and i respect them but they're very very scared for their own self-existence right now and therefore will do anything to prove to me that i'm smoking something yeah that's perfect steve the genie out of the bottle there's no question they created a panic the panic went into full flight. And then even if they realized, oops, we overshot there, they, they're, they've got a problem now. Because try changing a panicked population of millions. That's not a trivial job at all. Uh, in fact, it's, it's proving to be near impossible. So in Ireland, I am watching what can only be described as high farce over the last few weeks. They've got a four-month plan uh, the barn door was swinging at the end of March. They closed it uselessly. And now the people want the door to stay closed at all costs. The horses are long gone. They're finished. It's over. Completely over. And um, in Ireland, though, the politicians are not only not reversing the lockdown. That's certainly true. But our chief medical officer, Holohan, and our... Health Minister Harris are fueling and fearmongering even today and yesterday. So they're not only not trying to slowly get the people back into the bottle, they're actually keeping them uh, panicked. I mean, it's astonishing to me, and I can only surmise that they actually believe their own anti science. There's no other explanation. So they have never realized, looked at the data, and understood any shred of this, they actually believe that they collapsed the curve. And this is astonishing to me, Steve, and, and makes me embarrassed to be an Irishman, but we have a bunch of academics, professors and whatnot, who have launched a social media kind of platform and written letters to the government to say that we must not now drop lockdown we need to keep it going for a few more months to crush the curve. So these guys have no concept that the horses are gone. They're not out across the prairie. They're over the horizon. In fact, the horses now are dead. And they're actually saying we need to lock down for a few months to keep the horses in the barn. And that's high farce. And they must believe it. And, and one thing that really annoys me too is they're sitting on full salaries at taxpayers' expense, fear-mongering. Uh, but what about all the business owners and the people who have been utterly destroyed by this? They have no voice. But the guys who are sitting on their ass working from home are pontificating anti-science. 
and and they're being let do it. Oh, I, you can probably get my I, frustration. I, it's, no, it's no, I, outrageous. I do, I do, I do, and I feel the same way. I've seen a couple of things you you've shared, and and I see what our our ministers are saying. You know, we're fighting the virus. We're <laughs> winning. We're beating it down. You know, we're controlling it. You know, we're gonna you know, stop. Stop. When in history has have humans controlled nature? Like really, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. You know, we we have eight trillion viruses like within our bodies, each and every single one of us. Like we have coexisted in a perfectly fine way with viruses contributing to to our life and us them. This idea that we are controlling this is ludicrous. It, uh, we may be controlling our response, but we're not controlling it yet. The narrative. Um, that you hear these politicians talk about is just this kind of absurd childlike language. Like, you know, we're, we're fighting this virus and we're winning, we're fighting the enemy. Uh, but everyone's buying it. And yeah, I, I get a little bit despondent too, if I'm oh. honest, man. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, you- look, to be honest, we've always been at war with Eurasia, right? 1984. There's an enemy we're fighting, we're winning. It's complete poppycock. I mean, mm. it's just absurd. So for every species on the planet, uh, and there are almost infinite species, even including all the bacteria. There's a hundred viruses for every species. A hundred times all the species on the planet, there are viruses. And each species has around a hundred of its own viruses. And sometimes they move around between species. They are part and parcel of us. They have a seasonal trigger, especially while well, the coronaviruses and the influenzas and several more have seasonal triggers. Others don't so much. Others do have more a spreading nature, but not coronaviruses and influenzas. They're seasonal and they're just part of us. Now, I know there's a lot of tragedies when you hit the flu season and you get the spike, especially older people and people who have poor metabolic health from diet and and other things. Um, So it's not to take away from the human cost, but the human cost is the same as 18, the same as 2000. So anyone who's suggesting they're saving lives and that this is really the big one and we're fighting the virus. That's a lie. This is similar to previous years. It's only technical circumstances conspired to have a huge amount of like almost dry kindling people who have not been affected in the previous year and a half. And then it hit tight together, which of course is going to blow the hospital capacity and look terrible. But that's it. And you know what? Another point I'd add, when they began to run out of debts because the cycle of the virus was going through, doing its thing, independent of lockdown, they began to talk about children with Kawasaki disease. Now, Kawasaki disease is a very rare inflammatory disorder, and it's going to associate with this season and corona a little. Uh, There's no causality, but they admitted there was no causality, but they gushed in the press about Kawasaki, pure scaremongering. And Kawasaki blows up in late winter and early spring with low vitamin D when immune systems are low. It's an inflammatory disorder of the arteries, etc. So they jumped on that rare disease possibly being higher, right? To create more fear porn. And another thing I've noticed lately, because the death porn is drying up and you can sense their frustration, is that they're talking about long-term effects. Now, many diseases have long-term effects because they hit the system hard and there may be long-term sequelae. But that's just life. You know, mortality is the only way you can measure this. 
because yes, there'll be long-term effects and months of maybe partial weakness and stuff, but that's part and parcel of diseases like this. You Absolutely. Know? But they are, they my are wife, fear. My, mm. my wife, Michelle, um, got, got shingles a couple of years ago. Um, we, we know why for the most part. She had an, you know, she was pretty, you know, down for, on, a, on an immune perspective. Mm. Probably she started the kind of buildup of Hashimoto's and, you know, she had a, and it was horrible. She had shingles for a couple of weeks and, and well, a couple of months even. Mm. And she has some nerve damage that's going to live with her for the rest of her life, like on yes. her face and stuff. And it's irritating. She can get through it, but it's irritating. I've I've somehow, through my 40 years of being on this planet, caused some damage to my skin or caused some inflammatory response. I've, response. I've got a little bit of early stage vitiligo on my face. That's a long-term consequence. I have to live with that. Um, there's consequences of everything that we do to ourselves or come into contact with. I think that is, again, it's a bit of misdirection. And it's it's also, I think, hypocritical because I, I keep reminding people of this, either. There's um I think last week last week, if you look at the actual deaths versus how many were registered for last week, I looked at the ONS data, it's a couple of thousand people had died with COVID. And let's not get into whether they died of COVID, but they died with COVID based on the tests. Um in that same week in England, over ten thousand people died of all other causes. And that happens every single week, week in, week out. That's actually quite a low week. Uh, and that's going to continue. So there is a, an ordinate amount of people that lose their life every single week in this country, just because, because it's a contract of life. You know, people die, they age, they have issues. Yet there's no sympathy for that. But when I say, let's recalibrate on this, I'm considered that I'm being disrespectful that X person had a vulnerable per person in their life at some point and they had to deal with them. Maybe they had them on a ventilator. Maybe they were at their bedside for a couple of weeks. I'm like, I get your, you've, you've struggled and you have vulnerable people in your life and you know what it's like to struggle with someone who's struggling with their life. But you're exacerbating your prior history with saying that's going to happen because of COVID and I'm being irresponsible by saying there's more deaths of all other causes. It's... It's emotional. It is only emotional. I've yet to see a non-emotional response to this because I'm deeply looking for one because I, I, I want to be proved wrong. I want to see what other people see and I just can't see it. Yeah, you can't see it, Steve, because it's not there. Um, emotional has taken over this, political, emotional, and let's be honest, also commercial behind the scenes, hundreds of billion or many billions of dollars have been sent or spent gearing up the WHO and Imperial College and all, basically they were wound up and, and this thing, they got to light the blue touch paper and, and retire to a safe distance and look what happened. So, you know, that, that, that was done too. But there's many reasons. But the reality is that, well, the figures we talked about and as Professor Levitt said, this is equivalent in the year to one month of additional risk. One month of mm -hmm. additional risk, just like previous seasons. You know, it, it just, you cannot change your life based on one month of additional risk. Recently, Washington Post or one of those papers came out and showed the actual risk for different age groups. And it's stunning. The risk of dying in general versus the risk of dying if you have COVID. And there's almost no difference statistically. And the ONS data from the UK, I believe, they show the age-based risk of death for a given year. And when you superimpose over risk of death given that you had COVID, it's the same line. 
You can't even tell the difference. And people just don't realize this. So ask them, do you know anyone who knows anyone, right, who, who, who suffered and died from this? And the vast majority will say, well, no, because 55% or 85% in Canada were actually in care home settings. Sweden's, Sweden is 75% in care home setting. 50% of deaths were actual care homes, big ones, where they got a lot of problems. Another 25% were care home settings with home visitor. And then of the remaining 25% of Swedish deaths, I think something like 30 or 40% were massively disproportionately Somali ethnics who have profound vitamin D deficiency in those northern latitudes and massive exposure to risk because they have immune system frailty. So if you look at the Swedish figures, you can nearly take out 80 plus percent as having a known cause. So what do the Swedish figures look like then? But, but no, one, no one is thinking with any rationality. You're absolutely right. This has become totally emotional from a people whose vast majority has no capability of internalizing anything technical about viral stuff. Uh, and therefore, they're, they're cannon fodder to propagandists, basically. Yeah. And, and that's what's happened. Yeah, I also think that, you know, people are doing the best they can with what they've been given. And um, I do yeah. think the public sentiment is a product of mainstream media, right? It is. Because uh, yeah. I just have to speak to my mum or, or my sister or any of my friends. And what they tell me is I know what they got from the BBC. And we know the BBC are a mouthpiece for the government. So uh, I can't blame them because if not, they're not seeking resources outside of what's finding them um that's your fact that's your life that's 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 the truth so I, this isn't coming from a place of judgment other than hopefully yeah. this conversation starts to open your mind to that there, there might be other avenues of data that you might want to look at but let's let's kind of close on 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 this kind of go covid piece by i guess placing some assurances so you you're saying this thing you know the horse is gone it's finished like we're, we're out of this so one would assume, based on your language, you believe we have exited the epidemic. We are very much into an endemic, which is effectively a seasonality of uh, an infectious disease. And you've spoken about risk levels being relatively low compared to just other all cause, um, all causes of death. So help people trying to work out what that means. What does that mean for the average person who, hey, they might be over seventy, they might have diabetes, they might be overweight, they might have these quote unquote comorbidities. And if we agree that the UK have a relatively sick slash aged population, one would argue that there's a lot of people that would consider themselves vulnerable to an extent. I'm try I want to I want to help people understand relative risk, because because you may have uh, more risk. I still want to put that risk in perspective for you because the alternative is you hide under the bed sheets for the next few years, hoping this goes away. Talk to me a little bit about that. And like, how would you encourage people who are in the higher risk categories to think about this? Yeah, well, I'd say age is the biggest risk factor, of course. So it looks like from Professor Ioannidis's work and from the data that for young people below 20 or so, you're vastly lower risk from this than you would be for a, a tough influenza. And no one cares about that, so you're lower. So that's fine. For people below 50 or in their 50s, it's around the same risk as a tough influenza. So again, what do you do about that normally? 
most people do nothing as it happens. I'm not saying that's right, but that's a reality. And then when you get up to the 60s and 70s, particularly when you add in metabolic disease, your risk then gets worse than influenza for those groups, certainly. So they're the groups you're probably talking about. So I would say now we've largely passed, but this will become endemic and probably come back in um, the late winter, at a guess. Um, and then you got to say, well, what can I do before next November, December to make my risk small again? And that's what everyone needs to do. Obviously, if they care, they'll do that. And if they don't care, they'll do nothing. So for people who care about their risk, well, firstly, they can personally, when the disease is very prevalent, like maybe next winter, they can personally uh, do the hygiene stuff or if they want to do his masks, they can try and protect themselves. You can't expect the healthy to do that. It's absurd, but they can do protect themselves. But the real thing is what I mentioned. What can you do by next winter to plummet your risk, even if you're in an older group with more risk? And what you do is what we know from the science. If you lower your insulin resistance or diabetes, and we have published papers on this from Verta, and we have stuff from all over the world. If you go to a meat, fish, eggs, and above ground vegetables, nutrient dense, real foods diet, within days, never mind weeks, your insulin and leptin will drop and your risk for viral problems will plummet. So people will say, oh, that's woo. It's not woo, it's science. One of the biggest risk factors for this is leptin resistance and insulin resistance and hypertension caused by that. And if you fix those things, which you can do within a week or two, mostly and over a few months dramatically, you will completely change your risk profile and you'll have done it for yourself. You're empowered. Mm -hmm. Eliminating processed foods, sugar refined carbs and seed oils, which is ultra processed foods, those three terrible ingredients and eating real food is going to make a dramatic difference to your insulin glucose levels and put you with a far stronger immune system for your age. And then vitamin D, we know from the human studies, we have four now. If you're below 20 nanograms per mil in vitamin D, which is deficient, you have 10 times the risk of serious outcome or death from COVID than someone who's above 30 nanograms per mil. Now it's associational, but it's corrected for age, corrected for sex, corrected for comorbidities, solid data, 10 times lower risk. And the way you get into the above 30 nanogram group is not just taking supplements because that may or may not help a lot. What you do is you get rid of insulin resistance and inflammatory problems and eat real food, bit of exercise, and you'll head up above 30 without even taking supplements because it's a marker for those problems. You can also get healthy sun exposure all summer and build up your D levels, right? That's anyone can do that and be ready for the winter. Uh, you can also take supplements and no harm if you're deficient, but you know, they may not give you the nitric oxide and all the other things the sun gives you. And they're not as good as fixing your D status by eating real food and fixing your metabolic issues. But hopefully what I'm saying here, if you add in magnesium supplement, because the foods now are bereft of, of magnesium nowadays, and maybe selenium and iodine can be important. So a few key supplements if you did all that stuff for yourself, well, you'd lose weight, you'd feel great, your mental acuity would go up, you'd find out you're not getting near as many infections, and your whole life would improve. And when come next winter, you could be way lower risk than you are today. 
But who's going to do it, Steve? There's no patents and no profits in anything I said there. And that's the problem. Yes, it is. It is. But I, I guess people's people, we have people's attention right now. We have mm. people's attention that you have you have an option. You can either yeah. hide under the bed sheets and hope this goes away. And we all know that. I think most people I speak to just assumes this is going to disappear. A couple of months at time, we're just going to be back to normal. But I don't think they've cognitively played that through only for themselves to say, are you going to be okay going back to normal? You think it's going to go back to normal, but are you okay to do it? Because the perceived risk is still going to be there for you. So I agree. I think we it is it's challenging and there isn't a money incentive behind this. And the vaccine monetary incentive is going to be very high over the coming quarters. But we have people's attention. I think people are wanting to take some control back. I do think whilst pe- the public sentiment is in support in principle in these measures, I think they're growing cynical because they the 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 weak the the easing doesn't make any sense. And as soon as that cynicism starts to trigger, and it's saying, okay, how can I take control? We may have an opportunity to speak to people. So I, I I'm optimistic that there's an opportunity here for people to really take control of their life. But if I was 80 and I was obese and maybe I've got diabetes and or something else. Um, so, and I, and so I, you know, based on all the measures I'm, I'm very much in that camp right here, right now, May 29th, easing of lockdown measures in the UK. What would you say to that individual? Would you say, continue your shielding? Would you say within that period of time, do what you've said around nutrition and lifestyle and then when would you say, now go forth and have your life again, go out and inter- integrate yourself into the community? Uh, if that was you, what would you be doing? The timeline? Right. Well, you could say another week or two, maybe just to let this thing fade out completely and come into the summer season. And then from all previous virology, you know, you're pretty much safe then until next winter. Um, so a couple more weeks, be very careful yourself, but do not expect other people to be careful you want the other people who are healthy, who won't be affected, to spread it and finish the cycle completely. But that's kind of happened. Uh, so maybe keep the hygiene yourself, protect yourself for another couple of weeks until this tails off entirely. Uh, and at the same time, get going on what we just discussed. Because if you care about your health and you are worried, then you should be motivated to actually fix your risk. And, you know, we have 105-year-old people who got COVID and passed and recovered no problem. It's yeah. not really the age, it's the metabolic health. The age is Which just correlates the, well with age though, doesn't yeah. it? Because this this country in particular, it's just it's abuse, isn't it, over decades, which uh, correlates nicely with age. By the time you're sixty or seventy, if you keep doing the wrong things for 30, 40 years, it's gonna it's gonna look uh, homogenous, right? It's gonna look relatively similar in most people, I guess. And that's maybe the tight correlation with age. Yeah, exactly. And the general thing that uh, as we age, we it's very hard to avoid insulin resistance and our immune systems flag. So the reality is, yeah, it, it, age correlates with frailty and um, insulin resistance and all the other things I mentioned. So it's a correlate. But if you have an 80, I'd much prefer to be an 82-year-old insulin-sensitive person with good muscle maintained than be a 55-year-old diabetic. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. Obviously, I wouldn't want to be 30 years older, uh, but I would be happier being exposed to a big sneeze from corona, uh, being a metabolically very healthy 80-year-old than a a diabetic 50-something-year-old. Rough and tough. 
So that's the reality. So a couple of weeks of doing all we say, you can get your risk to plummet. I think if everyone in England over the next few months got a, as much healthy sun as possible without burning for nitric oxide, vitamin D, and many other photo products relating to the immune system, and switch to real food and cut the 55% of calories England's currently eating from ultra-processed foods, which drive diabetes and disease, and then got a few minerals uh, and vitamins, crucial ones like magnesium, potassium, selenium, and a few others, and made sure you're replete. If everyone in England did that, then if a wave next winter was going to kill 40,000, I'd say you could divide that by five. Rough and tough. I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying that would be my guess if everyone did it. And if you divide it by five, you, it'll be much smaller than any previous winter where we never even took any notice. So that's kind of the bottom line. I mean, if you maybe attach just two, two things uh, to this, maybe later, Steve, I've done a 15 minute on vitamin D and it touches on insulin resistance and explains what we just said. A 15 minute podcast with slides and a 20-minute one which covers all the other stuff, like the actual risk, the actual numbers, and the evidence against lockdown. So if people really care, there's around 35 minutes there that basically is most of what you need to know about coronavirus. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, I think that's a great conclusion to um, an animated (laughs) and passionate discussion from two people that hopefully you're sensing over the mics, we care deeply. This This isn't about money this isn't about finance this isn't selfishness my life's fine like my life has not changed really because i work from home and we have a blessed situation at home so we're okay i'm doing this because i want people's liberties back and i want people to live a good life and hey we do we do what we do either because we want people to thrive and at the moment we're we're not doing that we're knowingly not thriving and we could change that very quickly so um thank you for everything you've done so far on this matter either and for this conversation of course um you we have mentioned your podcast but do you want to just give a moment just to kind of point to the resources and the movie so people can check that out afterwards yeah great steve no really enjoyed it um but it, that's that's just such an important point I, i'll reiterate it yes I've spent eight years fighting for to stop people dying from heart disease and Alzheimer's and metabolic disease. That's been my whole life. Um, I make no profit from it. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have a bit of a salary from it. And it really is offensive when people accuse you of not caring because you're trying to bring clarity and science to this matter. And like you say, way more people will have the invisible blood of death from lockdown than will have the visible blood of death from corona. So it's truly, truly, um, I don't know, it makes me angry, to be quite honest. Mm. But anyway, we let that go. So the movie, <laughs> the movie is extratimemovie.com, all one word, extratimemovie.com. It's $3.99 to stream or $9.99 to download. And it deals with something vastly more important than Corona, which will cause vastly more death, has been and will do. And that's heart disease, heart attack, sudden death. And we basically, the movie explains how you stop and even reverse heart disease in a high scoring calcium person with massive risk. And, uh, you know, it's a great movie. And if people watch it and share it, particularly that'll support us and, and help us to keep doing what we're doing to get the, the true message out on the science of health and cut through the propaganda and the BS from the corporates. <laughs> hear, hear. And where can people find you outside of that? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, where are you active? 
Twitter, extremely active, as you're aware. So if you Google Ivor Cummins, my name, you'll quickly get in the first page my Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, where I put a lot of material out on YouTube. So Twitter and YouTube are probably the big ways I communicate. Um, so if you Google my name with any topic, you might quickly hit on a YouTube video relating to that or indeed to tweets. So I, I find just Googling my name is, is one of the easiest ways to, uh, to get to the various material. Absolutely. Cool. And I will link to all of those, uh, including some of the references you've made as well. Ivor, it's been a true pleasure. Continue fighting the good fight. Uh, let's keep in touch and uh, let's hopefully reconvene in a couple of months time, congratulating the world for waking up and <laughs> getting back to normal. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Thanks a lot, Steve. Good luck. Bye now. Take care, man. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.